The Compliance Perspectives podcast is sponsored by Entrax, the contract lifecycle management solution that is exclusively focused on healthcare. Learn more at www.entrax.com. Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Mary Ellen Palowicz. Mary Ellen is Senior Managing Director at Denton's, and today we're going to be talking about the EMTALA rules. First, Mary Ellen, thank you for taking time out of your morning to talk to us today. And thank you, Adam, for the invitation. Happy to speak with you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and I want to thank you also for your article on this topic in the HCCA magazine, Compliance Today. I found it fascinating. Uh, let's talk about EMTALA first. I think it would be good if you could give an overview of the EMTALA rules for those who may not be so familiar with them. Okay, happy to do that. Um, basically, the EMTALA requirements are for hospitals that participate in Medicare, and that includes hospitals, critical access hospitals, and the new hospital provider type called rural emergency hospitals. What EMTALA requires is when individuals present to hospital emergency departments, the hospital is required to provide a medical screening examination. And the examination is done to determine if, in fact, the patient has an emergency medical condition. If the patient has an emergency medical condition, and that's determined by a qualified physician or practitioner in the typically in the emergency department, um, the hospital is required to provide stabilizing treatment within their capabilities. Uh, if they are unable to stabilize whatever that emergency medical condition may be, then they are required to arrange what is called an appropriate transfer to a facility that has both the capabilities and the capacity to provide the stabilizing treatment. And what's important with EMTALA is the protections around EMTALA for the examination, for the treatment, and transfer if needed, is it has to be done without, um, regardless of ability to pay or whether or not you have insurance. So it applies to every individual that comes to the emergency department, and hospitals can't turn people away because they don't have insurance, whether they have an ability, you know, have, have money or not to be able to pay for the services they're going to receive. That's the basic premise of EMTALA. Thank you. I mean, that's very simple and straightforward. There's two phrases, though, that people tend to get hung up on uh, when it comes to the EMTALA requirements. One is clinically stable and the other is stable for transfer. Can we talk about them? What does clinically stable mean in this context? Well, I think first it's important to point out that both of those terms, clinically stable and stable for transfer, are not in the EMTALA regulations or the statute. They are terms that are very commonly used in hospitals and emergency departments, and it's um, um, by the clinical staff. Um, I previously was a nurse in the emergency department, and those the terms are often often used to refer to patients that are you're providing care to in the emergency department. Clinically, clinically stable may be anything from um, a, a, a comparison of how the patient 
presents when they first come to the emergency department and how they're doing after you've provided some treatment. It's something you'll hear on the news. The patient is stable, is clinically stable, or the, or the physician or practitioner may tell the family, you know, your family member is clinically stable now. And it's just an objective term that's used to give an idea, to give, I should not idea, but maybe give, an, a, give um, a summary of how the patient is doing at that time. Um, it may mean that they're better than they were with the, when they first got there um, or that you've done, um, the hospital has done whatever it can at that point and either they're going to admit the patient or maybe they're going to transfer the patient. But it is a common term that is used, um, a subjective term that's used to um, describe how the patient's doing at a certain point during their stay in the hospital. So then what does stable for transfer mean and how is that different? So stable for transfer, again, similar to clinically stable, is not a term that is referenced in the EMTALA regulations. However, it is very commonly used in hospitals. It may even be required by state licensure that there's documentation that is, that is um, the documentation that the patient is actually stable for transfer before they are moved to a new location. Making the determination for stable for transfer doesn't necessarily mean that the patient has been stabilized as that is defined in the EMTALA regulations. It, be, it, it may just mean that the, the hospital has done as much as they can within their capabilities to ensure a safe transfer to another facility. As you probably know, there are patients that are very unstable. Think of a, tra a, a trauma patient or a patient that's having a heart attack or, um, or some other very serious condition. And even though they are very, unstable as far as their vital signs, signs and symptoms that they need additional treatment. The hospital, if they've done as much as they can to get the patient in the best condition possible to be able to put them in an ambulance or a helicopter, then, then they can reach that threshold for stable for transfer. So complaints often arise over allegations that a patient was treated improperly. How does the complaint investigation process work? So when complaints are generated, and that can be done by a patient, their family members, that can be done by staff at either the hospital where the patient originally initially presents or to a hospital that receives a transfer from another hospital. And the, the complaints are sent to or called into uh, typically the state health departments. They can also be sent directly to Medicare, either usually at one of their 10 locations around the country. Once the complaint is received, um, you know, there's a discussion with the person that calls it in to get as many details as possible, and then it gets logged into, this, into their system and reviewed um, by the, one of the CMS um, locations, and they'll determine if, in fact, an on-site investigation is warranted. If there's concern that whatever behavior or the allegations were in the complaint, if there's concerns that the same thing might happen to someone else, or if there was harm or an adverse outcome of some, of some sort, then there's a very high likelihood that a complaint investigation will be authorized. The CMS office will send a, the state to go in and do an investigation of that specific complaint, but they also look at um, other patients that were treated around the same time and all EMTALA requirements, not just the one that is um, of concern in the, the one or more that are, that are of concern with the complaint. Um, the on-site investigation, they'll, they'll look at medical records, they'll talk to staff, they'll do a tour of typically the emergency department. The surveyors then determine whether or not they believe the hospital is in compliance with 
the EMTALA regulations. Um, so then the surveyor will determine if, in fact, the allegations are substantiated or not. They'll also determine if the hospital is in compliance with all EMTALA regulations. The surveyor then writes up a survey report identifying what they found when they were on site, and that gets sent from the state to CMS. One of the analysts at CMS will then review those, the allegations, in if, if, there were, if the hospital was in fact found to be out of compliance. And if any of the medical care was involved, um, whether there was care that was provided or maybe a lack of care that was provided, um, then the case will be sent to one of the quality improvement organizations where they have um, physician reviewers that look at the care and whether it met <clears throat> what would be considered national standards of care, national standards of practice. Um, they'll review, the physician reviewer looks at a variety of questions and provides feedback and then they send their summary back to CMS again. And CMS then will look at both the, um, the deficiency statements that were written by the, by the state on site and then also take a look at the, uh, at the um, summary comments from the quality improvement organization reviewer to determine if in fact the hospital is in compliance or out of compliance with EMTALA. If they are out of compliance, the, um, the hospital gets notified that they have to, that they've been, you know, that they have deficiencies with EMTALA, that they have to submit a plan of correction within 10, within 10 days um, to address all of the deficiencies that have been identified. And then uh, that gets sent, the plan of correction gets sent back for review. And if it's approved, Typically, there's a follow-up survey where they'll come back out to ensure that, yes, in fact, you did all the things that you said you were going to do on your plan of correction and that you are back in compliance with all EMTALA requirements. So finally, how can compliance and medical teams best collaborate to minimize EMTALA-related problems? Well, I think at first it's important to understand that the way we provide care in emergency departments doesn't necessarily align exactly with the regulations. So. Um, my point in, in, in writing the article in the first place was to, to identify clinically stable and stable for transfer are terms that are used very common. You'll see them in documentation. Um, but, but those terms alone and even documentation that patient has reached those thresholds um, does not necessarily mean that the patient is stabilized per EMTALA. And the EMTALA protections apply to patients while they have unstabilized emergency medical conditions. So I think being clear about the differences of what happens in the clinical setting versus what is required in the regulations is, is what's, what's important for both the compliant, really for the compliance and the clinical staff. In addition, hospitals have policies on how patients come and are present and are treated and provided care in the emergency department, how transfers are done. Hospitals have EMTALA policies and I think it's key to review your policies to ensure that what's in the policy is actually the processes that are being followed in the emergency department. And um, the compliance teams usually work with, with the clinical staff to, to identify what their quality improvement projects are. Are we looking at all the transfers that, that are sent out of the hospital? Were they appropriate? Are they, are they meeting the, the <clears throat> are they within the requirements of the EMTALA regulations? I think, um, reviewing those policies and procedures to ensure that you're doing what you say you're going to do um, and that all of those policies and procedures are in compliance with the regulations as they are written is probably most important.
Well, it's a very complex area, and it's an important one, I think, both for compliance teams and for all of us as family members of patients or patients ourselves to understand a bit mm -hmm. more about. So, Mary Ellen, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us here today. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.